It is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams. On Monday, May 18th, 2020, I'm Kevin Williams, podcasting in Billings, Montana. If you have any suggestions for the podcast, please email me at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. That's kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Also, check this out. Uh, check out the podcast on Facebook and on Twitter at LDS Life Podcast. Now, admittedly, I've not updated my Twitter feed in months, but I the Facebook feed is pretty regular. Sam Bushman is my guest today. Sam Bushman is blind. He owns a network called Liberty Roundtable. He's had uh, at least 30 years in radio experience, probably more. He owns his own network called Liberty News Radio. He is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And he also owned his own radio station in Delta, Utah. He's also a father of eight children, married to a wonderful woman named Julie. How are you, Sam? I'm doing fantastic, sir. Yeah, the radio network is Liberty News Radio, the nationally syndicated talk show that I do Monday through Saturday. So it's six days a week, two hours a day, is named Liberty Roundtable. So yeah, I've been in radio for a long time, and I got a big family. Yeah, and uh, we'll just start... uh, with uh, talking about how is it being blind and apparent? Because I would imagine I'm blind myself, as you know, and I wonder too how I would handle it as a parent. Because someday your kids obviously found out that you're blind, and they thought, "Oh, I can do this behind my dad's back," and you caught them. How did that work? Because I, I, kids will be kids; they will do that. All right. So there's a few things that you should know. Number one, I don't know how to raise kids not being blind. And so I really don't have a difference for a comparison for you. So I I highlight that just to say that I don't have a comparison, which is what a lot of people look for. I do have a reality check, though. And so my wife and I taught our children early that, you know what? You never play games with dad because he's blind. If you want to play games with dad, you can play games with dad all you want, like any other dad. But you never, ever take advantage of his blindness. And I was a wrestler growing up. I was a varsity wrestler all four years of high school and stuff like that. And so I'm, you know, a pretty rugged, rumbling, tumble guy. Uh, And so I told my children, that listen, if you play games because I'm blind, I will hunt you down and you'll never do it again. And my kids would say, well, what if I run? Well, you can run, but you can never hide. You're going to be on the toilet, and you're going to be vulnerable. And you're going to be asleep, and you're going to be vulnerable. And trust you me, I will take advantage of either of them, and you will never do it again. And so I've had a couple of kids try it, and the rest know never to do it again. It's that simple of a discussion. So we can be dad, and we can be kid, and you can do the kid things. But you will never take advantage of dad because he's blind. And it got to where the other kids would even help the point that say, I wouldn't do that. I would, you know – we just won't play that game. And that's just the way it was in our household. Yeah. So um, you also homeschool your kids. Uh, how, how is uh, homeschooling? Who does most of the homeschooling? Uh, you or Julie, or do you balance it out between the two? So I'm always going to give my wife more credit than I take. So she does more of it than I do. However, we homeschooled our children when they were young. Uh, as they get older, though, we put them in private school. So they've gone to American Heritage Schools. Uh, and I've had six graduate, well, five graduate from American Heritage School and the sixth one's about to graduate. Uh, So we did homeschool when they were young and then we moved to private school as they got older. Homeschooling, my wife did a lot of it, but I did quite a bit as well. You know, I'm pretty good at writing papers, pretty good at articles. And so whenever they had a writing assignment, I could help quite a bit. I would uh, support them in doing a lot of research. A lot of times it would cross political topics, lines and things like that, which I do very well at. So I would help with that. My wife taught them to read initially, but once they can read well enough to be able to sound out words and or even spell words to me, I would listen to them read out loud quite a bit, hour after hour, and helping them learn to read uh, very well. And I would explain, you know, give them, uh, if they didn't understand a word, I'd explain the word. If they couldn't read a word, they could spell it to me and I could tell them what it is. And so I helped a lot with their reading. I helped a lot with their uh, assignments there. I helped a lot with being the enforcer a little bit, you know, when things would get to where a kid was melting down then they'd come and see dad, or if they weren't cooperating for a teacher, mom, then I would play enforcement roles. So I played a lot of those roles. Homeschooling to us isn't just a a discussion about um, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Homeschooling to us is a real life uh, exercise. And so when we'd go to the store, for example, uh, you know, I would help my children understand how to compare products. Hey, how much is it per ounce, son? And would talk about, hey, how to pick which, okay, look, is that, 
a good comparison. Is this is it worth it to buy the smaller box even though it's a little bit more pronounced? Well, it depends on how big your family is, right? If your family's big and you can use a Costco size, then that probably makes the most sense. If you've got a teeny family though and a lot of it's gonna go to waste, then it's probably not a good idea to buy the bigger size. And so we went through a lot of those life reality check lessons and I played a huge role uh, in some of that. I remember my daughter wanted this little beanbag chair and, and she said, you know, dad, I want to, I want to buy this. And I said, we well, don't have money now. You got to save your money, but I don't think it's a great use of your money. She said, but dad, everyone has one. I said, I don't believe that's true. She said, oh yeah, dad, all my friends, everybody has one. I said, I don't. She said, yeah, but you're old and you don't count. <laughs> I said, okay. And so I took her literally in the store and I literally stopped customers and asked how many had them. And believe it or not, I won six out of 10 did not have them. And so we literally did a survey. She was super embarrassed, but she learned a valuable <laughs> lesson about, you know, when you say everybody has one, it's just not true. Now, if you say you want one and it's something that you really weigh out in your mind and you save your money for, uh, then that's something really worth considering. And so we want to stop the impulse buy. We want to encourage the educated, thoughtful research purchase. Uh, I also worked with my children when they were boy, my young boys. <clears throat> The first boy that turned 11, I said, hey, you know what? Why don't you start a lawn mowing business? I will fund the project and you can mow my lawn to pay me back. And I'll put you in business interest free. And he ignored me and said, no, I don't wanna do that. And so he blew me off. So I just let it go. About two years later, he turned to be about 13. He's like, dad, do you think if I wanna mow lawns, you'd help me mow lawns? I said, I was waiting for you to ask. So we started a lawn mowing business and he mowed lawns and saved up enough money for his mission. And then he basically sold the business to his younger brother who for a year helped him and learned by apprenticeship uh, what to do, how to trim, how to edge, how to mow, how to understand the different settings on the mower, how to take care of the mower with gas and, you know, oil and the different things that are required. And so then the second boy bought the business, worked at it for a couple of years, made enough money uh, for his mission. The third boy, now we're on the fourth son uh, who has got nine lawns this year and he's mowing and saving money for his mission. Uh, and so they've literally passed this business down and every child has been able to pay for their missions with this lawn mowing business. And I started out and said, I'll, I'll lend you the money. You pay me back. You can mow my lawn as your first lawn and that way you can practice. And if it gets messed up, it's okay. We can work through that. And I would help them and teach them how to bid yard work so that they can you know, make decent money. Uh, my kids have never been able to make the kind of money like that uh, until they're older, you know, 17, 18, 19, they can start money, making money that good. But when you're young, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, you can't even get a job, but these boys have been able to make good money and their trademark has been, they'll put headphones on and they will sing at the top of their lungs while they're mowing. And so I can't tell if the neighbors and people in our area who have the mow lawns love the lawn mowing or the singing better. Either way, they enjoy both of them. So what kind of that's songs kind of been the trademark and what we've done. What kind of songs do they sing? Would they sing the uh, Who Made Who by ACDC or Thunderstruck or what? They might. They primarily sing country songs, though. Old or new? So I try, to, I try to raise my kids on country music. I know there's a few bad songs in the mix, but believe it or not, uh, among the country genre, there's probably – more good songs than in other genres if you learn how to pick them out. So they start that way, and as they get older, they make their own music choices. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I would imagine homeschooling costs a lot of patience. I assume you've heard of a person named Oliver DeMille. I mentioned him on my podcast, Clearback. Uh, well, when I was interviewing a person named Joni Bills, I'm sure you've heard of Oliver DeMille. Yeah, of course. And what's your opinion on him? You know, I think great stuff. I think homeschooling is a very personalized thing. And that's kind of why we did homeschooling when they're young and then we put them in to a private school when they're older. What we needed out of the private schools was primarily they would graduate from high school in a traditional sense and get a certificate from an accredited institution. And that's why we moved to the private school solution as they got older. It also got to where our children started to get smarter than their parents. You know, when my son was a junior and a senior, he was taking calculus courses and he knows more about math than I do. Uh, now he's in analytics uh, in computing for a living. I make my living in IT, but I'm not into analytics as much as he is. He's probably forgot more about analytics than I know now because it's just it's something that he has a hobby with. He does his own 
uh, podcast and he does analytics breaks down in sports and this kind of stuff. And uh, he literally knows more about it than I know by far. And so this is an example where kids, you know, when they have their uh, certain things that they love, and they find their niche in the world. Part of homeschooling and or private schooling says, how do you get them a greater education than you can provide? And that's where some of these calculus and these physics teachers have come in. They can provide science labs and things that we just can't provide at home. And so we early on, as our kids got older, made a decision to say, how do we transition them to life? And uh, before they're eight years old, I like to homeschool them for sure, because I believe they should be with mom and dad learning prop primarily moral discussions. And, and family discussions. But when they get a little bit older, and especially as they get past, say, 12 and 13 and 14, in my personal view, it's wise for them to get out into society and learn from other people, have some rejection a little bit from other people, have some constructive criticism, have some outside uh, support of the values that we've taught them. All these kinds of things come from the outside world and help them grow. You know, children, when they're teeny, don't have a lot of agency. Not because they don't innately have agency, but because they haven't had any experience to use it. And I believe our job as parents is to help them slowly but surely learn how to use their agency wisely. If they stumble, we're supposed to grab them and help them. At some point, they're supposed to use their agency on their own. So when my children turn 18, I tell them, I'm not your parent to make decisions for you anymore. I'm your advisor. And if you want to hear from me, I'd love to tell you what I think about any given thing that you're working on or working through. But by the time you're 18 years old, you need to be making your own decisions and you're going to sink or swim on your own. I'm going to be there to support you. But my role instead of decision maker becomes completely advisory. I'm an advisory person at this point. I'm your dad. And if you want my opinion and guidance and input on something, I'm glad to provide it. But you've got to make your own decisions. And so one day my son was 18 years old or so. And he came to me and he said, Dad, what should I do about this? And I gave him a lot of thoughts. And, and at the end, he says, yeah, I know. I appreciate all that. What should I do? And I basically had to tell him, I just don't decide for you. You've got to decide that yourself. I don't know. Um, I've given you my opinions and input. And so as, when the kids are young, as they continue to get older, we do more and more and more and more and more of a hands-off approach. So when they're young, they don't have a phone, for example, a digital phone. When they get a little bit older, they share one with their brothers and sisters, kind of like a kid's phone is what we call it. As they get a little bit older, they get a phone, but it's got restrictions on it. Over time, we lay, uh, reduce those restrictions to the point where, you know, when you get 18, you got to make your own decisions. And, and so that's kind of the parenting and the homeschooling and the life lessons that we all kind of wrap up together. Uh, we don't look at school as just in the classroom only. Yeah, that's a good approach. Uh, so do you go through the phases of learning like Dr. DeMille does? I can't remember what they are. The first one is, uh, I can't even remember, but you probably know what I'm talking about. Well, so are you familiar with face-based education is what we use. Um, a face-based, or a face, I'm sorry, face-based education approach has a lot to do with um, research and recording. And there's four R's that you use in this program where you, you learn to research and relate and record uh, your experiences. So we use a lot of the four R'ing in the faith, face, not faith, but face-based education. It's very rooted in faith, but the idea is we're not just trying to get you to learn something to regurgitate it on a test and be done. What we're trying to do is get you to be educated but relate it to your life. Record it so it can be referred to. You know, that which you write down as a goal becomes a real goal, kind of an idea. And as people learn to research and relate and record these experiences that they go through, they become uh, more and more adept at understanding the material, internalizing it. Our goal is to kind of write on their fleshy tablets of their heart these moral principles that matter. Yeah, so what made you begin homeschooling in the first place? Okay, so it's research, reason, relate, record, just to finish that, that thought, and then I'll answer your question, Kevin. Okay. The reason has to do with as you research, you learn to reason through these things, and then you relate it to your life, and then you record the results of your experiences. And so, anyway, face-based education through the four R-ing is critical uh, in our learning environment. So, uh, now you had a question? Yeah, what, uh, what made you begin homeschooling your kids? So, it's a long story, but when I was a kid... <laughs> I had a unique home teaching companion. I know they don't do home teaching now. It's all, uh, um, yeah. you know, ministering and stuff like that. But when I was a kid, I had the blessing of having two home teaching companions. One was my father, 
and he was very uh, dedicated to home teaching. And I didn't want to go as a kid. I was your typical radical wrestler, teenage boy, and I just didn't, I didn't really appreciate the finer, the better, the most important things in life at that time. Uh, but my dad religiously and relentlessly had me go with him. And I started to realize the advantage in the relationships that I built from that. When I would come back to a ward, it was the people that I home taught or that home taught me that I had the strongest relationship. They were the ones that would come up and say, how are you doing? And give me a big hug and a handshake. And they were the ones that, you know, hey, what, what's happening with your kids? Or how's your brother doing? Or, and, and I knew them the best. And I realized the importance of relationships then. But as I continued and I got a little bit older, my younger brother needed to be, had a home teaching companion. So he got my dad. My younger brother, Josh, got my dad as a home teaching companion. And I got Reed Benson. Oh. So Reed Benson, just so everybody understands, is the prophet Ezertab Benson's son. His name is Reed. And I grew up with his children and stuff like that. And they were partially homeschooled. Now, the reason I say partially is they were given a choice to stay homeschooled or to go to typical school. And some kids chose homeschool, some chose typical school. Uh, and they kind of bounced back and forth a little bit. But as I worked with Reed Benson, I became, I understood that he was a very big homeschool advocate. He was also a very big patriot, as you all know. Yeah, and so I learned from him about liberty, about agency, and most importantly, about the choice to homeschool. And so I got my real conviction to homeschool from him. However, before that, as a blind person, I did actually uh, a combination of normal school or whatever you want to say, government school at public school and homeschool. And partly the reason I did homeschool is because I never went to a blind school. I went to a regular school, but I had a resource room. So one period a day, uh, they would help me translate things into Braille, or they would read things on the tape for me that I could listen to. And so I kind of did a little bit of that, which was kind of a separation from the normal classroom, a little bit of homeschooling. But then my mother learned Braille, and she learned Braille so that she could help me to make sure that I was educated. And, you know, some say she did a poor job. Others say she did a great job. <laughs> the jury's still out on that. Uh, but I bring that up because, I, in a way, with my mother helping me, I did some homeschool. It wasn't traditional, complete homeschool, but it gave me a taste of what it was like and where the real learning took place. I understood that with my mother who loved me and sacrificed for me, believe it or not, I got just as much, if not more learning there than I got anywhere else. And so between Reed Benton and my dedicated mother, I had a kind of a little bit of a, an immerse, immersing in homeschool, if you will, to where once we got older, my wife and I were both interested in it. And uh, so we started it and it worked so well. What was kind of interesting is my wife was a little bit worried about homeschooling at first, hoping that we were good enough teachers to keep up. And when we transitioned our children to private school, American Heritage is one of the best private schools in the country, we, they'd usually do an intake test. And uh, so what would happen is then they would come back and they would say, well, you know, your child could be in fourth grade or fifth grade. And at first they would say, why don't we put them in fourth grade? Uh, we don't want to be too aggressive. Let's just kind of. Uh, kind of have the hold back approach. And, but what would happen is my kids would get bored. So my son, Ben, skipped a grade. And uh, all of my children have graduated from high school in three years, not four. Wow. And so we learned very quickly that our education is just as good. It had some drawbacks. We weren't quite as good in some areas as, as American Heritage, but we were better in other areas. So now uh, not only did my son, Ben, skip a grade, my son, John, skipped a grade. Uh, and all of my children have graduated in three years, not four. So my kids graduate at like 16 and 17 years old. And then they work for a year before they go on missions. And so it's worked out really well for us. And we realize that homeschooling, although different, and it may not be for everybody, is an absolute viable solution. And when people say, wow, good for you, I don't know if I could do that. What I usually say to people is, if you've been through the government education system for, say, 13 years, that's kindergarten through high school, in another four years, so 17 years if you go to college, or more if you have any, you know, uh, accelerated degrees or whatever you want to say. Um, if you're not able to teach someone after that, then I'm really concerned about the education you got. So you got to remember that if you can't, one of the ultimate ways to, to know if you understand a subject is if you can teach that subject to others. And so if you go through 13 to 17 years of government school and at the end you're afraid you can't teach somebody, I'm afraid you've been failed, and why would you do that to your children? So I'm a very big homeschool advocate. I'm not here to attack anybody else's choices, but I am here to say let's be real about it being a very viable solution. 
Yeah, you know, I used to think homeschooling was the stupidest thing just because I knew some people that were very sheltered that were homeschooled. But then I got a hold of a, a seminar on the CD by Oliver DeMille, and I thought, this might actually work. And since then, I've met some homeschoolers that actually I thought did a pretty good job teaching their kids, to be honest. You might know some of them. Name drop after the podcast. Yeah, it all it all depends on you know how you socialize your children, you know what you do, and there are people that are not too uh, refined in their social skills, whether they're homeschooled or whether they're um, you know schooled otherwise. But remember, every one of the founding fathers, with rare exception, was homeschooled. The Savior Jesus Christ uh, was homeschooled, and so if it's good enough for those people, it's certainly good enough for me, is what I like to say. But I also remember this. You know, if you want to see what you don't want, just go to a, a big government high school public school assembly. And if you want your oh. kids to act like that, go right ahead. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, well, that that's interesting. Um, so I know, obviously, uh, you're blind. What was growing up for you like as a blind child? I know that's a loaded question. Obviously, it sounds like you So, were... again, I don't know how to compare because that's the only way I grew up. But I will say this. I had two sisters and four brothers. And my four brothers were very interested in making sure that things were difficult for me. Uh, they were hardcore boys. And so I got left places and had to learn to find my way home. I developed some pretty good navigation skills as a result. And, uh, you know, I had the rough and tumble of everybody else. I grew up as a wrestler. Uh, so like I said, I was a wrestler in high school. So I got, I got, you know, right in the thick of it with everybody else. And my parents didn't shield me from anything. Uh, they would let me do pretty much whatever I wanted. Uh, I don't mean whatever I wanted from a moral point of view. I mean from a, they weren't going to say you can't do something because you're blind. So I got to shoot BB guns and shoot guns and have bow and arrows. And, you know, I went skydiving after I turned 18. And so, you know, I've been able to do just about anything. And as a result, I think the, because of that non-sheltering that I've had, um, I was pretty integrated into the mainstream and into society and life. Yeah. And uh, what did you went to high school where in, in the in Utah? So I went two years in California to a place called Camarillo High School, and then I went to two years at Timview High School. Oh, okay. And uh, you're adopted. Have you met your biological parents? So I, along with my four brothers and two sisters, so there's seven of us kids that are all adopted, and uh, we joke and call ourselves the Cabbage Patch Kids. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but I, I did hunt down my birth mother and I did get to know her and uh, she's now passed away. I did hunt down my birth father. He was already passed away by the time I found him, but I am in touch with several cousins and uh, I've got a couple of brothers and sisters that I keep in touch with. Uh, and I've got an aunt that I keep in touch with and several cousins. And so I am in touch with my birth families for sure. Okay. One question I was going to ask you about parenting what, what, because you're blind, were you ever worried about being left alone with you, your little children, let's say one, two, three-year-old? That maybe, They wouldn't even take advantage of you. They'd just be typical kids putting toys in their mouth or putting things in their mouth that you could swallow. You know, so I never worried about that too much. I'm a believer, a firm believer in this. You know, when you get born on this earth, you can just believe you're going to die at every turn. You can be paranoid to walk across the street. You can be paranoid to, you know, people die that way, you know. Yep. A lot of people die that way when you really look at the statistics and the numbers. And so I was always a believer that, you know what, Heavenly Father made me a parent. You know, we partner with God as we procreate. And so Heavenly Father made me a parent, and I believe he'll give me the skills uh, to do it. I have very good ears, and I have very good uh, skills. And so I believe that, you know what, you're not going to die if your mission's not over. Now, somebody would say, well, Sam, that's just stupidity. No, I, I really believe this. If you are keeping the commandments to the best of your ability, you will not be removed from the earth until your mission is complete. And so with that in mind, and that's kind of how I've lived my life, too. I've ridden bicycles and motorcycles, and I've driven boats, and I've water skied, and I've ridden motorcycles and driven cars. And, and I'm telling you that if you live to the best of your ability righteously, you will not be taken from the earth until your mission is complete. And so I've always believed that about my little kids. Now I've done my best to be very vigilant uh, when they're super tiny, you know, my wife could leave and I could listen to them and they would take a nap and I'd wake them up and hold them and, and cuddle them and stuff like that. The most difficult part is when they get old enough to walk, but not old enough to talk. 
that area in between is a little bit more difficult. You just got to be super vigilant and you can do things like use a playpen for them to play in and hang out in or else you're holding them or they're in the playpen. Playpen, which means you've kind of got a little bit of parameters about what they're getting into. You know, they're not just over there sucking on a cord that's plugged into the wall or something, right? And yeah. so I would, between that walking and talking stage, I would use playpens uh, and or certain rooms that I knew were a lot safer than other rooms uh, to hang out with my children in while my wife was gone and that kind of stuff. But I didn't worry about it too much. After my kids got to be about five or six, uh, they learned, you know, you don't not talk to dad. If dad calls your name, you answer. Uh, and that way, you know, uh, it worked out pretty well. And I've, I've had eight kids and, you know, I can watch kids and grandkids and it works out. And one, what you got to do is in your life, you got to live with faith over fear. Yeah. Yes. There's trouble out there. There's problems. It's a brutal world. It's hardcore. At the same time, God loves us. He has not forgotten about us. He will protect us and he will make sure that our missions are complete if we do our part. And I just have to trust in him uh, about that. And it's important to tap into the Holy Ghost. It can let you know of things. I do remember a couple of times, and I do believe I was prompted to do and or say certain things that have protected my children over the years as well. And that part cannot be underestimated. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a little bit here because uh, you said your kids are, you know, everyone's going to die. It's true, and statistics do show. I'm sure I could get something out there where more people are dying from being hit by a car than, let's say, the coronavirus. Now, I have crossed busy streets as a blind person, and people are shocked that I cross this busy street. Well, it's, I have to listen to parallel traffic and such. Sometimes I might wait two or three cycles just to make sure because some intersections are very complicated. But I've done it. But, uh, you know, you said that, you're doing your best as a parent. We're all going to die. So playing devil's advocate, because I've heard people bring this argument before. Oh, we shouldn't have seatbelts because we're all going to die anyway. What would you say to that your argument, just playing devil's advocate? I would say I'm fine with seatbelts. Educating and transparency about good decisions and wise, careful living, provident living is important. If there's a seatbelt, you should wear it. So mm -hmm. I'm a guy that advocates for a lot of those cautious, safe, wise educated solutions and decisions, I would say we ought to have seatbelts in cars. Where I would draw the line, though, is we shouldn't have a government force us to do those I can things. agree with and that. So now, now we're trying to get political a little bit. I don't mean to yeah. necessarily on an LDS podcast, but my point is... Oh, we can know, get political all, out here. All good things we should embrace. And so I do wear seatbelts by choice, but I don't mm -hmm. believe a government should fine me and or put me in jail or cause me problems if I choose not to wear one. So I believe in agency. I, agree. I also believe in provident or careful living. And that's kind of the point that I'm making about. You can't just say, oh, yeah, I won't die until my mission's over, so I'm going to jump off the Empire State Building. Okay, well, you're going to die, and you're going to die premature because you're being stupid. <laughs> we need to be very careful that we live a provident living lifestyle, that we're careful in our living, and that we obey rules and laws, and, and, and we do things appropriately that's part of being preserved to fulfill your mission and it's a it's a sacred responsibility that i believe um that you make it baptism really yeah now how did you meet your wife julie so we were at a church barbecue and she was with some friends and i was with some people and she felt like she needed to meet me and uh, they were about to leave and she was kind of going oh no i'm not going to get a chance to meet him and uh, then they came by and they knew me so they said hi to me and i started talking to them and then we got introduced and that's how we met. Okay. And uh, how long did you date her before you married her? We dated for two years, and we've been married for 28. Okay. And what year did you get married? 1992. Okay. That's the year my niece was born, actually, one of them. So yeah, so then, 1992, we got married, and um, when we were dating, you know, my wife was kind of young. She was 17 when we started to date. And uh, her dad sat me down, uh, her mom and her dad, and it was me and my wife or my girlfriend at the time. And we sat down and he looked right at me and he said, what are your intentions with my daughter? Because I was a little bit older. I'm six years older than she is. And so he said, what are, your what are your intentions with my daughter? And I looked right at him and said, I intend to marry her, sir. <laughs> and they were a little bit chagrin with that answer, if you will. And... Um, mm -hmm. Then they said, well, what is, you know, what is Julie or what does she think about that? And I said, well, I don't know. I think you should ask her because I'm not going to answer for her. And uh, so then they asked her and she said, yes, we intend on getting married. And they said, will you wait till she graduates from high school? And I said, of course. 
And they said, well, you gradu- wait until she graduates from college. And we said, no. So we waited, and about a year after her first year of college, uh, we got married. But we were very patient, uh, and we, didn't, we weren't in a rush of any kind. And we dated, and, and uh, it's worked out very well. My wife can see, and all my children can see, just so everybody knows. Yeah. I'm the only one that's blind. Now, uh, so obviously you have a good relationship with your in-laws. I'm not sure if they're still alive, but obviously you came to some. My wife's mother is alive and the father is not, but eventually I had a great relationship with both of them. Okay, good. I say eventually because it took a little bit of time. Her, her mom, for example, wasn't against me, but she was worried about her daughter marrying a blind person and how well that would work out and some things like that. And so there were a few things to kind of navigate through, but we worked it out. Yeah. Now, you got into radio. This is what I really wanted. You got, how did you get into radio? And I want to talk about your radio career. It's a long story, but a short answer of it is that I met a friend named Kurt Cosby over a political campaign. So Bo Greitz was running for president back in 91, 92 range. And um, I... After working with Kurt, because Kurt was involved in the campaign, we started listening to the radio because they were going to buy some radio advertisements to promote Bo Wrights on the radio. And so we started listening to the radio and we listened way late at night and we heard guys like Jerry Hughes, who did a radio program called Washington on Trial. Yep, and we I heard a guy that. named Chuck Harder and Chuck Harder did a show called For the People. And the things they had to say on the radio were just shocking. They were just startling. They were just like, are you kidding me? And I thought to myself, either these guys are frauds. Or they're really onto something. If they're frauds, they need to be exposed and shut down. And if they're true, they need to be promoted. And I dug and dug and worked at it, and so did Kurt and the two of us. And eventually, we determined they were telling the truth. So we went to the radio station owner, and we said, hey, will you put this on in a, a little bit better time in the middle of the day? And they go, no. And we said, why? And they go, well, we just turn on the satellite and leave for the night. So we don't even know what's on. We don't care. We're like, well, we want this on. And they said, well, tough beans. And we said, well, what if we pay you? And then they said, oh, okay, well, we'll put it on there. And so we started to sell radio advertising and pay for it. Well, then one day what we would do is we would run the advertisements and then we would collect the money and pay after. And then all of a sudden one day the radio station owner came to us and said, you got to pay in advance now. And we said, well, why? That's not fair that we haven't done that before and you've never, we've never not paid. Come on. He said, that's just the way it is. You got to pay in advance. So that kind of ticked me off. And so me and my wife had just built a home <laughs> and my wife, you know, a pretty humble, kind person. I literally sold my house and we went and bought a radio station. We moved both of our families, my family and Kurt's family to Delta. We ran that radio station for a decade, learned the radio business by hard knocks, sold it to like-minded Americans and then went national with our nationally syndicated radio network and that's what we run today. But that's basically how we got into radio. We learned that, you know what? Advertisers wanna control what you say or drop you like a rock. Uh, we learned things that if you want to uh, really have a say in the media, you better own the media. He who owns the media makes the rules is the point. And so we learned a lot of things along the way. And, hey, 30 years later, I'm still in radio. Yeah, so you bought your radio station in what, 96? Yes. So we started doing radio before that because, remember, we did all that stuff with the different stations uh, that I told you before that. Uh, and but we actually bought the radio station and got licensed control of it in '96, and we sold what, it in about 2006. What uh, radio station w- was running these programs? Chuck Carter, Jerry Hughes, and all those. I remember it those. was a station. It was a station in uh, Provo, uh, and then there was a station in. Uh, well, they were both in Provo, I guess. The two stations uh, that ran things. I don't have the call letters in front of me right now, but it was those two stations. Okay, so. Uh, they just ran a guy by the name of Jesse Veach is who ran one of them. Okay. But they just, they just turned on the satellite. I guess whatever was coming over the feed, they just had a feed in mind that, you know, there's whatever's coming over here. It's not offensive. So we'll just leave it on that feed. That that was a school. I wonder if anyone else listened to that station at night that liked the program. I, I think a lot of people listen to the station at night. I believe they had a lot more listenership than, than they realized. They just didn't kind of understand it, and they didn't put two and two together. They weren't really directly involved. It was just for them a way to stay on the air, uh, et cetera. And, but that's how we discovered it. And, you know, that's why when a lot of people say, hey, Sam, your radio shows are small compared to Rush Limbaugh, you're just teeny. And my response is, I don't care. And they say, well, Sam, you're just preaching to the choir. And my response was, how big was the choir before I got there, and how big is it now? 
In other words, you know what? Uh, one person makes a tremendous difference. Just imagine if you were speaking to a George Washington or just imagine to Chuck Harder and, and Jerry Hughes when they spoke to me. I went and literally bought a radio station as a result of their influence. And so you never know uh, how big or small your impact is. And I'll just tell you one quick story that kind of highlights the impact uh, that we can have for me. It shocked me to the core. But Cleon Skousen uh, wrote one of his last books. I don't have the book name in front of me right now. Oh, I think it was The Cleansing of America. I think that might have been it. You're right. And I, when I, I went to hear him speak about that book, when I got done, or when he got done speaking and everything, I went up and shook his hand. And I got a copy of that book at the time. And I reached out my hand to shake him, and I said, Hi, um, uh, Mr. Skousen, this is Sam Bushman. And he, instead of a one-hand handshake, put both of his hands around mine. You know how you take your hand and put it in both your hands and pull it close to you? Yep. So he did that to me, and he says, Sam Bushman, wow, I'm really excited to meet you. I am handing off the torch to people of your generation. I'm familiar with your work. I'm grateful for your work, and I'm excited for you to continue the legacy that we've started. God bless you, he says. And I was just shocked thinking, how does this guy know who I am at all? Uh, but that's an example of, you know what? Was this when you owned the station on Delta? Uh, I can't remember it was when I owned the station in Delta or before when I was doing that other stuff. It was either or both. Okay. So I don't remember all the time. You were actually on the radio before Delta. You were doing your own talk show in Provo or whatever. Yeah, and I I did some radio commercials, and I did some talk show stuff a little bit, and I was on other shows, and that's where we got our feet wet. By the time we uh, bought KNAK, AM540 out of Delta, Utah, then we started doing a full-time talk show every day. Before that, it was a little bit more piecemeal. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I want to talk about your station in Delta. What what was the hardest thing about running a station? You kind of alluded to it with advertising. What was the hardest? Because I listened to your station for the first time, in 1998, I actually had just moved to Salt Lake, and I was still commuting back and forth from uh, Boise, Idaho to Salt Lake, but I just moved there, got my radio working, and it was over uh, Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day weekend of 1998, and I was looking for a station that played uh, Chuck Carter and all that. I was a senior in high school. I listened to pretty much everything on the radio, and... I knew that I'd ran into your station, or well, the A station, because it was, uh, they were airing an advertisement, I guess a plug. This is back when uh, United Broadcaster, uh, the United Broadcasting Network, formerly known as People's Radio Network, was running something, and they were having this garage sale, if I remember correctly. And it said, uh, call. Yeah, I'm familiar with all that. That was when Chuck Harder uh, was with his own radio network. People's Radio Network, and then eventually got converted to United Broadcasting because he tried to work with the unions, and then they eventually kicked him out, and he went over to Talk America. And that was right after I bought my station, or a little bit after, a couple of years. And I felt disappointed because I'm like, oh, man, I bought a station to put on Chuck Harder and to do these things, and now it's not going to work out. This is horrible. And uh, But then uh, I said, well, I'll move to Talk America, but i got to have Chuck tell me so. Because, you know what, I don't know the truth. I don't know who's who or who's in charge. This seems like just a power play, and I don't know who to trust. And I said, if Chuck, call, uh, the, the affiliate relations person called me and said, hey, can you move over to Talk America and take Chuck? I said, you know, I don't really know the truth of where Chuck is or is supposed to be. And, I don't, you know, I don't want to make the wrong decision. I want to support Chuck. I don't want to support the people that are against Chuck. And uh, the affiliate relations said, listen, I'm going to have Chuck call you right now. And if Chuck calls you and talks to you about this so you know it's real, would you switch? And I said yes, and Chuck called me, and we talked, and I made the switch. So that's what was happening back at that time. And I did own the station. The hardest thing about running a station, I would say, is the engineering part. Now, I'm really good at modern-day engineering. Uh, I work uh, as a consultant for Wire Ready, so I'm – I've been involved in automation systems for radio for a long time. I've been a consultant across the country for that. I built a lot of my own software, so I'm very good at the modern-day engineer stuff. But the old-school engineering about ground systems and about uh, radio transmitters and that kind of stuff, I never had any schooling or education in it, and the hardest thing for me was to be able to handle – 
that old style engineering stuff. And way out in Delta, it was hard to get engineers that were good. So that was the hardest part for me, other than making enough dollars from advertising. So Okay, so I want to talk about the, how did you find engineers then? Um, because your station still today is very powerful. For example, uh, in 1998, just after I'd moved to Salt Lake, believe it or not, I was able to get your station clear up in Park City. I was shocked. So obviously it was a powerful yeah, station. Yeah, I'm not surprised. The lower on the dial of the station, the further it goes, as people know, and that's why we bought yeah. that station. I purchased it from a guy by the name of Doug Barton, who's well-known in radio, has been forever, and he's one of the most honest, in my opinion, profitable and responsible. I mean, the guy's just a class act radio broadcaster, in my opinion. I've always had tremendous respect for Doug. And he taught me a little bit of the ropes. And uh, in terms of getting engineers, I just reached out to some of the other station group owners uh, and made friends with some of the people. And then by word of mouth, I got somebody else and I got somebody else. And so it was primarily by relationships and word of mouth over time that I got the engineers. But that was the hardest part because it's just so far out there and engineers are busy people. Uh, it wasn't that they wouldn't help me. It was just hard for them to find time to help me. And so that was probably one of the hardest parts. And that's partially why we moved from a radio station to nationally syndicated radio is just because I, I know a ton about um, the modern radio stuff. I'm, I'm an engineer. Probably I know more than even the old school engineers about the modern tech engineering that it takes for internet radio and, and syndicating to radio stations. I know more about that than even the modern day or the yesteryear engineers know. They know more about transmitters and program lines and ground systems and antennas. And I know a whole lot more about streaming and digital and all that kind of stuff than they do. So once we moved to the nationally syndicated stuff, I didn't need any help. I don't, I don't have any help from anybody. I'm my own engineer and I built every bit of it myself. Let's go back to the, uh, to ad how did you fund the, because I remember listening to the station, you had very little advertising of your own. It was always mostly from the network feeds. I might have heard an advertisement here and there at the top of the hour. So how did you, I always wondered how you so I enough sold, money to I sold unique going. programming on the radio. I sold sports in the evenings. So high school sports and high school wrestling and basketball and football. And I sold that, which helped with a chunk of money. I also sold Christmas packages around Christmas time. We do a lot of advertising for Christmas because it was a way that we could kind of offset some of the politics that we were doing. When I bought the station, it was a country station and I converted it to talk. And some of the people there hated my guts for doing it. And others felt like it was great and they were excited. And, but I had a hard row to hoe because uh, previous owners of the radio station, not counting Doug Barton, he was honest, but before him, there were several people who didn't run it right. They would do things on barter, on trade, and then they would give people kind of the shaft. They wouldn't make good on their part of the deal. And so people had kind of a bad taste in their mouth about that. And uh, But I would run it differently. And so <clears throat> when I picked up an advertiser, sometimes somebody would say, oh, Sam, I, I didn't agree to that contract that I want to pay you. Or and they would push back. And I think it was really to see what I would do, to be honest with you. And what I would do is just smile and say, listen, if you feel like the service that we provided for you wasn't honest or upright or fair, I'll just waive your bill. You don't have a bill now. I'll just wipe it away. And the other thing I'll do is I'll run for you for the next 60 days, free commercials to show you that we intend no harm and, and we mean no, no negative. We would never do anything intentionally to uh, not give you a fair shake. We're in the community to stay. And so I would do that. And at first, people were shocked because they didn't think I'd really do it. But once I did that a time or two or three, people realized that I wasn't playing those games. And I gained a lot of trust. And so through sports, through Christmas packages, and then some unique partnership with farming groups. We would run some farming program in the morning and things like this. I remember that. Uh, and through those main three things is how we generated most of our revenue. So I probably could have walked into your station and said, Sam, I want to do a talk show. I'll pay you 400 bucks. Would you put me on the air? Probably, yeah. Okay. Now, um, I want to get to the network here, but before that, because you actually did do, I remember... When you were when you had your station at Delta for a while, you were you had your own network, the AR Radio Network. Yeah, so we had that for a little while. We actually partnered, believe it or not, with LDS Broadcasting uh, through Bonneville and the church. They had a big satellite system, and they I worked out through some friends of mine to get a channel on that, and we syndicated through a channel on that for for several, uh, for about a year and a half or so, uh, and that worked out very well. Yeah, so we did that. We've done a lot of stuff in radio. We've done satellite stuff and. Uh, just about anything in radio you can think of, we've done it. How many radio stations ran the AR Radio Network? Didn't you only have two shows, yours, your business, and Daniel Chapter 1? 
we had several other shows than just that, and we probably had 10 to 15 to 20 radio stations. I say 10 to 15 to 20 because some would take part of the programming. Some of them would put it on overnight and that kind of stuff. But we probably had 10 to 20 radio stations at the time. Okay. And then uh, I know in 1999, around the springtime, you started working for Chuck Harder. How did that go and what ended that relationship? It went very well. I did a show for Chuck. Um, that was, again, before we syndicated ourselves. Um, we sh Well, let's say this. Uh, we... <clears throat> So we syndicated ourselves, and people liked the show, and then Chuck liked it and wanted to pick it up. So Chuck picked up the show, and it worked very well. Chuck just had a hard time getting enough dollars and cents, so eventually he shut it down. It was to no fault of mine. There wasn't a breakup between me and Chuck or anything like that. It just was the, kind of the reality of the situation where he couldn't keep his second network going. He really got taken down and lost a lot of his mojo or his health uh, after the United Broadcasting or United Auto Workers issue. And so he tried to make a comeback and just couldn't quite make it. I don't think his health allowed it. And I think finances were difficult for him. Uh, I don't mean to speak for him. That was just my understanding. But there was no fallout between me and Chuck. He just couldn't really continue his, his radio network. Um, I also had Talk America offer to give me a show, too. And Talk America was huge at the time. They had probably 250 plus radio stations. And Tom Starr was the owner there. And I was in Las Vegas at a national radio broadcast convention. And uh, Tom saw me and he came over and he said, Sam Bushman, nice to meet you. I love your talk show. He said, listen, I want to put you on the radio and syndicate you. I can make you a big star. But there's one thing, if we're going to do it, you got to do. I said, what's that, Tom? I'd love this. This would be great. He said, you got to quit talking about God. I said, Tom, I hate to say this, but if God's out, I'm out, sir. No deal. I'm not interested. And he said, well, you'll regret it. And my response is, you know what, you do what you have to do and I'll do what I have to do. And the answer is I've never regretted it since. Sure, it'd be nice to be on that many stations, uh, but I'm not going to forego my, my moral compass. Uh, I believe God got me into broadcasting and uh, it's a calling from God to stay in broadcasting. And that's why I'm here today, sir. Well, let, let's talk about the Talk Radio, uh, the Talk American Network, because they were not on a lot of big name stations. It was mostly small town rural stations, if I recall. Correct. Yeah, it was small to medium rate stations. If you took the top markets, they weren't on in in LA and you not know even Salt Lake. Well, I guess Houston Salt Lake. or they were on a lot of small to medium markets. They were on over a couple hundred stations. They were a force to be reckoned with for a while. So was Chuck's network back in the day, uh, because they just had so many stations. I mean, a couple hundred stations, two, three hundred stations, kind of stuff, and it made up for not being in the biggest markets. It did actually quite well. The biggest markets were a lot more progressive and liberal too, so we didn't care because we're like, hey, we want the people who are in rural America, flyover countries, what we used to joke and call it. Uh, the, you know, those are the people that, that are interested in our kind of uh, content anyway. And so it worked out well, but you're right. It was a lot of small to medium stations for sure. Well, it was kind of funny because Talk America Network was in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. I remember flying to Boston on my way to my mission. I thought, I wonder how far Talk America Radio Network is. So it's kind of funny that it was in Boston, yet there was no flagship station and uh, broadcasting to rural America. I just found the irony in that, even when I flew to Boston to transfer planes. It just shows before the big wig shut down <laughs> – uh, a lot of small to medium uh, talk radio and a lot of small to medium stations. There was a real hunger for educational talk for people who would truly give it to the American people straight. Uh, now we don't see that in the big markets. Um, it's very hard to find that, but you know, we were the pioneers of the new media taking center stage. We were pioneers of this candid talk where you could actually get a hold of the host and know who you're talking to. And, and I've always responded to the public. And, you know, I was one of the top 250 talkers in the nation, according to Talkers Magazine in 2010. So, you know, our impact has been way bigger than people realize. People just think we're these tiny, you know, small town hosts. And to some degree, we are in that we're approachable in things. But our impact is bigger than you can imagine. So I was one of the top 250 talkers in the nation. I went to the National Republican Convention and broadcasted live. And CNN was there uh, basically, you know, feeding me and bringing me water. Uh, you know, I interviewed some of the, the biggest wigs in the country at that, that kind of event. I went to the Republican National Convention and then I went to the inauguration of President Donald Trump and broadcasted live from both of those places. You know, a lot of people had a hard time getting uh, credentials to do that. Even Alex Jones couldn't get credentials. But I was able to get credentials and go in there and broadcast live with the big boys. So our impact has been a whole lot more than we get credit for. How are you able to get those credentials? 
because I'm a nationally syndicated radio network and I own a station for a decade and I own a radio network that's a legitimate media service and I have credentials in the business to prove it. Being one of the top 250 talkers in the nation helps. Uh, the fact that I've developed broadcast software that is in all the broadcast companies. So, you know, you bought some equipment from a broadcast company. That company sells my software. And the software that I developed is called Audio Compass. It's, a, it's an audio over IP solution for broadcasters so they can broadcast remotely and sound like they're in the studio. Well, I literally have large broadcasters. I mean, Clear Channel and ABC and CBS and big sports teams and uh, a lot of people that would surprise you who use my software. And so, you know, when I just show those credentials of who I am in the business, it's impossible to argue with that I'm as legitimate as a broadcaster as any of them. Do you ever uh, worry about or do the big networks find your software and think, oh, this guy's politics are more conservative than Russia's. I don't want to deal with this guy. Have you ever ran into that with the big companies? I haven't. In fact, there seems to be a disconnect where they don't really realize it's the same person. Isn't that funny? It's kind of interesting, but I know this, you know, I talked to some of the biggest engineers in the company. I'm telling you, I could name 10 different broadcast facilities that you would know by name that carry my software that would shock you that use my software. And now, I'm not say, really here to name those people. I'm just here to say that my software is really, I've sold it to probably 350 radio stations so far. Now, when you say the company, are you the whole entire company nationwide uses the software, all their radio no. stations? Or? No, I'm saying some Clear Channel affiliates and some Fox affiliates and some ABC and CBS affiliates and some networks that would surprise you and some sports teams that would surprise you. They use my software. I guess they don't know what you really do because they probably haven't Googled your name much. Well, they also look and say, look, if, they, if you go to Broadcast Supply Worldwide or Broadcast General Store and you go through a legitimate um, distribution point for broadcast gear and my software's there, what it means is that it's been tested with their high-level engineers. I literally sat on um, a broadcast with their top engineers who vet all their software and all the things that they sell, and he literally asked me a gazillion questions. So remember, I'm the engineer, and I built the software, and so I literally answered all their questions. And so once the software is in their stores, they just say, look, this is legitimate software. So how did and you it is legitimate quality broadcast software that does a great job. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like Ted Nugent, though. You know, there's a few of us that are bold to stand up. Ted Nugent does that. But yet, you know, he appears on all the big talk shows and all the big places. They still, they love to hate him kind of a thing. They tolerate him. It's that kind of a thing to some degree, too. Well, let's, uh, before we get to your network that you do now, I want to talk about, uh, you were carried on two other networks the Accent Radio Network, and for a while you were carried on the Republic Broadcasting Network. What happened to those? Uh, how did you get onto the Accent Radio Network and Republic Broadcasting? So I built, along with a guy named Jay Harrison, the two of us built Accent Radio Network. Jay did the bulk of the work because it was at his location, but I acted as kind of a consultant and a support. Jay actually works for me to this day. We're great friends to this day. So we built the Accent Radio Network and ran it for Jim Fijo, the owner of Daniel Chapter 1, until the government caused him so many problems that shut the whole thing down. But yeah, I was an accident radio network for over 10 years. I was one of the principals that built that. Uh, Jay did more of the work than I did. I'm not trying to take credit where credit's not due, but I was involved heavily from the start. And the two of us really built it together. He leaned on me a lot while he built it, and I helped him, and now he helps me run my network. So, uh, but that's the, the story with that. On the Republic Broadcasting side, I wasn't very happy with some of the board ops. Oh. Uh, that were working at Republic Broadcasting because they wouldn't show up on time and stuff. And I said to the owner, John, hey, you've got to fix this or I'll board out my own show. And then eventually nothing got changed. And so I said, listen, I'm going to board out my own show. And he said, well, if you board up your own show, you're not on my network anymore. And I said, well, John, I got to do what I got to do and you got to do what you got to do. And I said, so why don't we just exercise my 30-day clause, and, um, and I'll just be gone then. I understand. I'm not trying to be difficult. I just I can't have this kind of – shoddy board op for my show. I got to have people available. And he said, no, forget it. You're off the air today. And I said, John, you don't want to do that to me. I've got a 30 day clause. I suggest you honor it. He said, I'm not going to honor it. You're gone today. And I basically then pulled an all nighter, drank a bunch of caffeine and built my own radio network in less than 24 hours. And I went on the air the next day and I was like, how come you didn't drink some of that AM PM from Daniel chapter I, one? I drank that too. Anyway, <laughs> and so I, I literally built a radio network and the next day I went on live and John didn't have a show and he called me after the show and he goes, 
I might have reacted too quickly. Can I put your show on until I find a replacement? And I said, John, no. And uh, that's how my radio network, Liberty News Radio, got built in the first place. I built it in less than 24 hours. Uh, he just ticked off the wrong guy. I'm not here to play games, but you're not going to take me off the air like that. That's just not happening. So, um, you know, I really would prefer not even to run a network. I'd prefer somebody else to run one. But if uh, I can't rely on anybody to do it, I'll have to do it myself, I guess. That's how that started. So how many, how many people work directly for you or host? Because I know you have a whole bunch of shows that you carry from Genesis Communications. and other, how, many exclusive, how many shows do exclusively your network? So I don't, I don't think I have any shows from Genesis right now. Uh, okay. But I do take shows from other networks, and I have taken shows from Genesis in the past. So what I do is I put together as many shows as I can or that make sense. Uh, that with my time and everything else. And then I fill in with other shows, but I talk to the hosts and get permission, of course. So in my network right now, I think I've got like five shows that we produce and the rest are from other people. Okay, but so they're all from like-minded friends. For example, C.L. Bryant is syndicated by Red, uh, what is Red it? Red State Talk Radio. Radio. Red State Radio or whatever. And, um, but C.L. Bryant, or I've talked to him, and he allows us to resyndicate his show. So he's a partner and a friend, uh, but they produce the show, and we carry it to help broaden their reach. And so that's how it's been. We produce five or six shows ourselves now. Okay. What shows uh, do you produce? So Other we produce my show, is, um, Liberty Roundtable Live. We produce yep. a show called um, Blood River Radio. We produce another show called Radio 75. We produce another show called um, The Political Cesspool, uh, and we are partnering with Liberty um, with um, Loving Liberty. Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm sorry, the mind it slipped my mind. Loving Liberty. So Brian Hyde, we carry his show. He produces it himself, but he carries our show that I produce. And a lot of the shows with that group I look at that we produce as well. Um, Brian and I work together. And uh, Brian Hyde's been on my podcast, by the way. Yeah, Brian's a great guy. And so there's those shows. And then there's a couple of other shows. I used to do a show called Tech Watch Radio, uh, which has been kind of put on hiatus. But we're replacing it eventually with a show called Small Business Tech Guys, which is a show promoting small business and technology that we're about to revive. Uh, So there's a few shows there that we do as well. I remember Tech Watch Radio. I used to listen to that religiously on Saturday mornings. I was kind of sad when you must have had yeah, a it's just that several of us are employed by other people and we just didn't have time. Yeah. And uh, so we put the show on a hold because there's just time. There's only so much you can do. You know, like I work a full-time job and then I do 12 hours of live syndicated radio myself, plus produce all these other shows. It's just a time issue. Well, yeah, for, for those of you that don't know, uh, you make very, my understanding, you don't have to quote dollars and cents unless you want to. Um, you make very little money with this venture. Am I correct? That's the impression I've always been under. Yeah, I don't make a lot of money with radio. I make enough money to, it's more than a hobby. Most people have hobbies that cost money. I have hobbies that make money, but they don't make a lot of money. Uh, It's more for the cause. And I've had chances to make a lot more money in it, and I've turned it down because, again, I want it to be pure. Uh, I want it to be for the cause, and I don't want it to be tainted by an agenda or a finance. So I make a little bit of money from it, and it's good that I make money from my hobbies, not lose money. But I certainly make more money in my day job, and when i got eight kids and a big family to support, you know, it's, it's not the moneymaker, that's for sure. What do you think the future of radio holds? I think radio, and believe it or not, iHeartRadio, some of the biggest broadcasters in the country, are really moving to podcasting like no other. And they claim that podcasting is live and well and here to stay, and I tend to agree with them. You know, a lot of people like video stuff, but video does really well short term. Believe it or not, if you watch a video and the, if you don't capture somebody's attention in the first 15 seconds, people are gone. With long form radio, it's personality driven, though. You know, if you learn about me and you like my take and you think, man, you know what? Sam's got a, uh, I don't always agree with Sam, but he's got a brilliant mind to break down topics and put things on the kitchen table. And I love to hear his stories and who he is. And, and so it's personality driven. And I believe that talk radio long form, this personality driven, will be here for a long time to come. Real quick. Uh, what do you like about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints? And do you have a calling? Then I'll let you go. I don't have a calling this second. Uh, well, okay. I do. Actually, I book the ward building or the stake building. Oh. So I have that as a calling. Uh, and I love the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints primarily because it's true. 
and I have prayed about it, and I'm convinced it's true, and I believe that living by its precepts precepts will allow us to live with our Father in Heaven as families together forever, and, and that family together forever. Peace uh, is what makes me believe um, that it really is something for me. Yeah. That idea appeals to me of having my wife and children forever, and that's what it's all about. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We'll do this again because there's some other topics that I want to cover, and we'll do it another time. You got it, sir. Godspeed. Thank you so much. Thanks very much.